the week in doubt, religious news stories from a skeptical perspective, random musings on everything from pop culture to politics, and even audio documentaries on weird and interesting topics like Krampus and the history of the holidays. The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, the host of The Week in Doubt. And this is episode, had to pause to think about it, episode 329. And before we get started, uh, as promised, here's another 10 Facebook uh, shoutouts. And hopefully none of these are repeats. So we have Joe Guzman, Earl Sweet, Thomas Barnett, C.S. Miller, Greg Bridges, not Greg, Greg, Becky Brown, Jason Simpson, Amanda Major, Frank Newcomb, and uh, Glenn Gregory. Okay, I think that's 10. And I'd also like to give a shout out to my friend Seamus from the Free Thought Profit podcast. Uh, yeah, he and John are both great. Uh, Seamus in particular, uh, we've been kind of, become kind of like online friends. We stay in touch frequently. And he's been uh, really good to me. Uh, Often gives me shout-outs or retweets. Uh, always has nice things to say about uh, my content. Uh, just a real mensch, to borrow a, uh, a, a Yiddish term. Uh, a real stand-up guy. And uh, I really appreciate that a lot. So I'd like to give Seamus a shout-out. Seamus and John, and of course their podcast, The Free Thought Prophet. If you haven't checked it out yet, uh, please do. Great stuff. They always have uh, very interesting guests on, sometimes very high-profile guests. Uh, I think they've had people like Lawrence Krauss, uh, Lucian Greaves, um, Sean Carroll, I believe, uh, a whole host of big names. And wow, it feels really kind of strange but good to sit down and record because I missed uh, last week. And uh, I wasn't slacking off or anything, as I think I said in the description of the uh, the repeat I released. What was it that I uh, I re-released? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That little documentary episode entitled the uh, the Abominable Fancy, uh, A.K.A. Christian Schadenfreude. Is it Schadenfreude or Schadenfreude? I can't even remember now. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I, I was working on an episode. And I, I thought it would be just, you know, a, a kind of casual response episode where I respond to, you know, a, a video I find on YouTube or whatever. And it ended up becoming really involved. And I, this is the first time this has happened in a while. But I was like, oh, crap, I'm not going to make uh, this week's uh, cutoffs. I'm going to have to release um, an old repeat. And when I do that, I, you know, I can be very hard on myself when it comes to judging my own work. I can listen back to an episode and always find things where I could have expressed myself better or where I feel like the production quality could have been better, or maybe I just think my voice sounds off, or, you know, whatever. So when I do release a kind of repeat, I usually pick an episode that, uh, relatively speaking, I happen to be proud of. And I personally think a lot of those short documentary episodes are kind of um, the more solid uh, ones. And, and so 
I figured, why not? You know, let's release uh, the Abominable Fancy again. I was almost going to release the, uh, re-release the documentary I entitled The Secret World of the Gnostics. Uh, maybe I'll do that next time. But one more thing before we start, kind of a little peek into my world. Uh, what a stressful week uh, with the holiday kind of, well, almost smack dab in the middle of the week, uh, you know, on Thursday. Um, you think it would be a relatively kind of relaxed uh, week, um, but uh, I worked a couple days with my brother, you know, doing working in the family construction business. And then he ended up going away with his wife. And he had suggested, you know, to kind of, to try to earn a little money for the lost time. And also, you know, just to help my sister out to catch up on some work she wanted me to do around her kind of, uh, her ranch. Um, and <laughs> I don't know if that sounds weird or, yeah, it's up, up in, uh, we're in New England here and I don't want to give away exactly where she lives. Uh, I don't want to violate her privacy that way. But she lives uh, near the ocean side and has a little kind of uh, horse ranch. And she needs some work done on her place. And so uh, I've been going up there. And uh, today I had to work side by side with my father. And just not a good dynamic. Very kind of stressful. Took me back to the days... Uh, not that long ago, a few years back before my father retired, what was like, <laughs> how stressful it could be working side by side with him. And uh, just like old times. And then somehow I got talked into uh, working on the 4th of July. So I'm going to be spending the 4th of July uh, doing, you know, uh, doing some painting and staining, little construction type stuff uh, for, uh, for my sister. Hey, I don't know. But I guess the upside is at least I'll be working by myself and I can listen to whatever I want. I'll probably listen to the music of my choice or chill out to some podcasts while I'm working, you know. So try to make the best of it. Um, but yeah, I, I was just, you know, I've been thinking lately. I'm like, damn, I, I got get out of this line of work, not podcasting. I love podcasting, but that's kind of the point I'm making. Um, I remember I used to say, you know, if I got like 20 bucks a month via Patreon, you know, that's enough to cover the expenses for hosting the feed for this show. Because uh, my, my Podbean plan is around 19 bucks or something like that a month. Uh, it starts out free, but then they kind of end up, you know, pushing you towards more and more expensive plans as you go. And I used to say, as long as I can pay my uh, my Podbean, my pod bean fee every month or expenses, everything else is gravy, you know, but I'm at the point now where I'm like, screw it. You know, I would really, really love to be able to make a living off of being a content creator. And so right now I think it usually fluctuates uh, my Patreon income between like 49 and 54 bucks a month. Um, sometimes payments get declined or I might lose a, a patron every now and then or something like that. Um, so I'm not really going to beat around the bush anymore or, you know, kind of play coy. I don't, I, I've always felt kind of self-conscious asking for money, probably just maybe it's human nature and also the way I was raised. Uh, and maybe also, you know, I kind of tend to, 
undervalue myself sometimes in, in various aspects of my life. But I'm like, hey, you know, even though I have a small audience, people seem to enjoy what I do. And I work hard on the show. And a lot of other content creators make a living off of what they do. And uh, a lot of people out there make a heck of a lot more money than I do as a content creator. So why not? You know, if people out there want to support me, want to become a patron, um, if I can continue to make more and more, you know, I'm not asking for, you know, astronomically, you know, grotesque sums of money like a Jordan Peterson or a Dave Rubin. I mean, hell, if I could just make enough every month to keep, you know, the lights on and to pay my bills, um, I would be more than happy if I could just eke by making a living, doing what I love being a content creator. And if I can do that, you know, I'll up my game. I'll make more like video content. I'll probably start doing like vlog type episodes, maybe kind of like a Kyle Kalinske, even create my own kind of set and maybe do like a daily show or whatever. Um, yeah, so that's what I'm saying. That's my dream. And I guess I'm kind of decided to be a little more outspoken about it in hopes that I'll get that much closer to making it a reality. But anyway, nine minutes in, let's get on with the show. <laughs> so uh, it recently came to my attention that a fairly popular YouTuber uh, who goes by the channel name Computing Forever, I think his real name is uh, Dave or David Cullen, uh, he released a video about his return to Christianity. First off, I want to issue the caveat or disclaimer that uh, people are, or at least ideally, should be free to believe whatever they want. And my goal isn't to shame or browbeat the guy back to atheism. Um, to be honest, I'd probably prefer that he, uh, he never watches or listens to this episode. And given how small my own channel slash following is in comparison to his own, there's probably a good possibility uh, that I'll get my wish. I'm probably not even, you know, a blip on his radar. And I say I'd probably prefer if he never even, you know, watched or listened, because I'm not looking to get embroiled in internet drama or in an online feud with some big YouTuber. But I did watch his video, and I disagreed with the lion's share of uh, what he said, and I wanted to uh, break it down on the show. And for my listeners who don't like when I get political, when, you know, I get into uh, this whole tense kind of left versus right thing, uh, I do apologize ahead of time because that does end up coming up. Uh, and I always feel like I'm walking, you know, a razor's edge when I get into uh, politics. I'm more at home talking about uh you know, ancient history and religion and stuff like that. But, uh, so that, that's just to, uh, to warn you. So to put things in context and give you some background info, uh, I've been aware of computing forever for at least a couple of years now. And as his channel name suggests, I believe he initially started out as a kind of tech review channel and then gradually became more openly uh, political and started engaging in social commentary, etc. I think you can go back about three years ago and start to see uh, words like regressive and lefty creeping into uh, his, uh, his video titles. 
And he ended up becoming part of the quote-unquote skeptic community. Notice I put skeptic in quotes. And this is something of a, a, a sore point for me. In the wake of uh, Gamergate and the whole atheism plus free thought blogs thing, the online atheism community pretty much became divided. You ended up with this schism. On the one side, you had these kind of overly politically correct speech policing types. And on the other, these kind of reactionary anti-political correctness, uh, as we would call them now, the anti-SJW types. And you had atheists shifting away from atheism and focusing on the evils of blue-haired college girls. And I know it probably sounds like I'm throwing both sides under the bus here, and maybe in a way I am. I started this podcast to talk about my own unbelief, my struggle with the big questions, and also so I could chime in on topics having to do with religion and atheism, etc., etc. Um, I'm not really one for uh, political tribalism, and I'm wary of groupthink, as I think all good uh, free thinkers should be. That being said, uh, as I've mentioned ad nauseum on the show, I do tend to lean left uh, on a lot of things. Gay slash LGBTQ. That Q, that, that one extra letter always takes the wind out of me. Uh, gay LGBTQ rights, uh, drug legalization within reason, separation of church and state, etc., etc. I'm saying etc., etc. a lot. Maybe that should be the drinking game uh, word or phrase of the week. And so to reiterate, these anti-so-called SJW, social justice warrior types, ended up drifting away from atheism and drifting further right in a lot of cases. And yet it was still being called the quote-unquote skeptic community or the septic community, as some had taken to calling it. So where once people had equated skepticism with your standard atheist types, people like uh, Seth Andrews of The Thinking Atheist, etc., you know, Aaron Raw, Matt Dillhunty or whatever, it started to uh, become associated with edgy, right-leaning, anti-social justice types like uh, Andy Worski. And in the beginning, I actually kind of liked Andy Worski. He seemed, uh, although admittedly a little rough around the edges and not the most eloquent of speakers, still seemed somewhat naturally intelligent, entertaining, and likable. And then we kind of uh, watched as he devolved before our eyes, ever sinking to new lows, courting alt-right white nationalist types, burning his own nipples, uh, blasting racist super chats in public while encouraging his friend to wave a loaded gun around. So uh, quite the hot mess, as the kids used to call it, or maybe still do. And granted, in fairness to Computing Forever, it, it was before Worski hit rock bottom, but he was or is, if you can even say it still exists, a part of the so-called skeptic uh, community. Uh, and once again, skeptic in quotes. And the reason it's a sore spot for me, and I say this half-jokingly, is because now I feel self-conscious every time I refer to myself as a skeptic or use terms like atheist slash skeptic community. Oh, well. And I think it was a couple of years ago, maybe more the way time flies, that Computing Forever was caught up in some, you know, scandal or debacle concerning someone who goes by the name Based Mama. <laughs> Can't believe I was forced to say that. And uh, 
some some sort of big event that was in the works. Uh, there was some squabbling, something to do with the funds that uh, had been raised, etc. And the event, which I think was cringe-inducingly named Kilroy, ended up uh, going down the proverbial shitter as people turned against the organizers and bailed out uh, left and right. Um, are we officially done with the term based? Please tell me we are. And speaking of cringy internet lingo, Computing Forever is one of the self-identified, quote-unquote, red pill types. And if you don't live on YouTube, this is a phrase taken from the Matrix. You know, Morpheus offers Neo the choice between the red pill or the blue pill. The, uh, the blue pill lets you go back to sleep, sleepwalking uh, through your false reality. The red pill wakes you up to the truth. And so... You had all these anti-SJW types thinking of themselves as heroically woke. Another bit of internet slang I hope dies soon. The more excruciating the death, the better. Uh, are we all living our best lives? Can we kick that one in the nuts and throw it off a cliff too? But not only do we have red pills and blue pills, I unfortunately learned while watching Computing Forever's video that we now have black pills and white pills too. The white pill also being known as the quote-unquote God pill. Oh boy. Uh, but let's listen. And for those of you who will eventually watch the YouTube version of this, it looks like Computing Forever took a page out of my playbook and he just recorded himself speaking and put some visuals to it. So I won't bother including the original video. I'll just play the audio because I think he has some, you know, some stock footage of like clouds uh, <laughs> drifting by and people walking down the street or whatever. I've waited a long time to make this video, mainly because I have no idea how people are going to react to it. Six seconds in, I'm already pausing. And this is why this episode took so long, because I was kind of creating an outline, jotting down notes of what, what I wanted to say, points I wanted to make. And it was like every, sometimes literally six seconds, I, I had to pause because there was something I took issue with or something that I wanted to chime in on. I wonder if that's true, that he had no idea how people would react. I don't want to sound too cynical, but I imagine the red-pilled atheist re-embracing Christianity angle probably, uh, you know, goes over pretty well with the writer conservative leaning anti-political correctness Prager U slash Jordan Peterson enthusiast demographic of his audience. I wonder if it was at least partially calculated like... I know some of my old atheist holdovers might object, but all in all, embracing Christianity will probably be pretty good for my brand and play well to my core demographic. Not entirely fair on my part, I know. Uh, I'm not saying that's definitely the case or how it went down, uh, or, or that he's not being sincere on some level, but I wonder if that was something akin to the thought process involved, or if he did take all that into consideration. And so far, it has about 21,000 likes and only, relatively speaking, 3,000 dislikes. That sounds about right, given the nature of his audience. It's probably uh, is comprised or composed of a lot of young right-leaning types who are already friendly towards religion, people who also follow, like I said, PragerU, Jordan Peterson, uh, Ben Shapiro, etc. And then, you know, there's probably still a few atheist holdovers. And uh, when you think about it, the video may have won him a number of new Christian subscribers as well. So as dramatic as the subject of an atheist uh, returning to Christianity might sound, and ooh, that might be risky for a content creator. 
Given the nature of his audience, it actually, you know, it, it may have been a net gain. But let's continue. As you know, I cover a lot of dark and tough subjects on this channel. The fall of the Western world and the fate of humanity type stuff. Sounds important. And through it all, simply calling out how bad things are or how crazy they've become can get repetitive unless a solution can be offered, unless there's a pathway to suggest to people. We all need hope and to believe in a better world. And I hope this video explains not only my own journey towards an emerging spirituality. Okay, so I know stopping so often uh, might seem nitpicky, uh, but as I was saying, I have a lot to say. So he's talking about how everyone needs hope, emerging spirituality, etc., etc. Drink, unless you're driving. And I'm not saying this is his uh, agenda, but because his religion of choice is Christianity, and he'll go on to say how he thinks Christianity is beneficial to good social values, paraphrase. One could read into it that he's saying uh, you should choose the Christian path. And I want to say I don't think there's anything wrong with being quote-unquote spiritual, and maybe we should stop to define just what the heck that means. And this is a topic that fascinates me and that I've talked about at length on the show. I think quote-unquote spiritual is a kind of substitute or placeholder word that people use for certain phenomena, things that move or transport people, not transport physically, but transport people psycho-emotionally, things that touch people deeply, transform consciousness, smack of profundity. This could be anything from being moved by art or poetry to being in awe of the beauty of nature, experiencing a sense of ego death, a feeling of illusory or not, of oneness with the cosmos or something bigger than uh, ourselves, sometimes induced by potent psychoactive drugs, tripping balls, I guess, to put it crudely. Uh, joking aside, you guys probably know what, what I'm talking about. And by these parameters, I, who identify as agnostic atheist, would be a, a highly spiritual person. And this kind of gets at the paradox at the center of my being or worldview. I'm fascinated by all things people consider quote-unquote spiritual, profound changes in consciousness, trance, religious symbolism, etc., etc. There you go again. And yet the rational... The skeptical side of me believes that religions are clearly man-made and that there's not really much or any compelling evidence for things like spirits, an afterlife, an immortal soul, a personal creator god. These things may exist, I don't know for sure, but I don't think the evidence is there, especially particularly when you're dealing with the supernatural faith claims or concepts of God uh, found in clearly man-made belief systems. So if we're to define spirituality as we did a moment ago, then I think there's nothing wrong with being quote-unquote spiritual. I actually think those kinds of uh, transcendent quote-unquote experiences, uh, courting or reveling in the mysterious, standing in awe of nature, the cosmos, the phenomenon of being, these are really rich and valuable experiences but you don't need superstition or man-made religion to engage in this kind of, once again, quote-unquote, spirituality. Like, computing forever, I too was raised Christian, but I can't ever see myself returning to the faith uh, without either lying to myself or embracing a very wishy-washy, figurative variety of Christianity. And why do that? Why limit myself to one set of religious symbols if I'm just going to, you know, be taking it figuratively. Uh, man, it looks like we're in for a long one. Uh, let's continue. 
as well as some reason for optimism, but also offers a clear explanation of how we can overcome the existential threats facing our nations. It seems now that a pattern is beginning to emerge among many of us who operate in this genre of red pill philosophy. I told you, here we go with the pills. I take so many pills in real life. Do we really need uh, all the pill metaphors? When you take the metaphorical red pill, it's just the first epiphany, the first layer. You realize how much you've been lied to all your life. You discover that you've been fed an ideology perpetuated through biased narratives and spin. You mean like religious indoctrination? Couldn't resist, but seriously, it sounds like he's describing religious indoctrination. You begin to discern truth from illusion and reject the programming that they attempted to indoctrinate you with. Yeah, that's how I became uh, an atheist or agnostic atheist, whatever the hell I am. Knowledge claim versus belief claim. Don't claim to know whether or not there is a god or an afterlife, but I'm very doubtful or skeptical, especially when it comes to specific claims of uh, specific religions. So he's kind of describing the process by which, you know, I got away from religion. Now, if the red pill is the means by which you discover that you've been lied to, the black pill is how you learn just how dangerous those lies truly were. The black pill is where you descend down the rabbit hole further and learn just how bad things have become. It's where the consequences of evil become truly apparent. It's also the point where you begin to experience a degree of hopelessness and despondence. All right, so it's probably safe to say that since this guy embraces Christianity, Christianity or religion isn't the lie or the indoctrination he's referring to. So what is? Well, since he's a self-identified red pillar and based on what he's uh, going to say as the video unfolds, in his mind, the horrible condition of the quote-unquote real world is the result of the evil influence of the left. And Christianity is the apparent antidote, or some crap like that. And in fairness to him, politics aside, he may also be referencing the general vagaries of existence, the burden of the human condition, etc., etc., which he probably also thinks uh, Christianity is an antidote for. This is the point of rock bottom. But luckily, from there, the only way is up. Things can seem bleak, but it's virtually impossible to stay black-pilled for long. It's simply too difficult to entertain nihilism or despair for extended periods of time. And here, in fairness, I'll agree with him in a sense. As someone who's been through uh, some dark nights of the soul, to uh, borrow a religious turn of phrase, who's descended into some pretty dark head spaces, who's battled depression and chronic pain, who knows what it's like to uh, harbor something of a bleak nihilistic worldview, I think he's right. You can only harbor or sustain that kind of thing for so long before it starts to really break you down. It's a very negative and stressful way to live, and it tears at you, um, or it tears at your mental and emotional well-being. And I think for the sake of self-preservation and quality of life, you do have to try to shift or to or find a more positive worldview. But that doesn't necessarily demand or require that you sacrifice your reason or suspend your disbelief and embrace religious dogma or false uh, man-made promises of an afterlife, etc. I think for me personally, the trick is in learning to enjoy the present, and that's a work in progress for me, learning to appreciate the experience of 
being, uh, finding awe in being alive, despite or in face of the knowledge that it's temporary and that no one really knows for sure what happens after. And that, yeah, maybe the final destination is just the grave, as grim as that sounds. But you can still find enjoyment and purpose while you're here and enjoy the ride or do your best to enjoy the ride. And I think that might justifiably sound easier said than done, but I found that the mind or the human quote-unquote spirit, figuratively speaking, as a non-believer, is rather resilient. And just like the body heals, the mind or psyche heals too or can, and you can become somewhat inured to the knowledge of your own mortality, to the transient nature of everything, and continue on enjoying life. Uh, you know, it's an ongoing process, and of course there are bumps in the road, dark times, personal tragedies, etc. That's all part of life. But you can find joy and purpose again without embracing religious dogma. And if you hear some noise in the background, uh, just to be completely honest, <laughs> I, I stopped last night and resumed recording tonight which is July 4th. So you can hear my neighbors uh, lighting off fireworks and you can hear my dog spazzing out uh, because of it. And I'm not trying to tell you not to embrace religion, although it might sound that way. And uh, maybe I am a little. Uh, maybe I'm being a little hypocritical there <laughs> because I, I value, I mean, for me personally, I value empirical evidence, factual truth, uh, critical thinking, you know, examining man-made belief systems, the world's religions, uh, the supernatural claims of those religions, just as objectively and critically as you would, uh, you know, any other subject. That being said, I do understand the pull towards religion. And as I was saying earlier, you know, I have a fascination with religious symbolism. I'm drawn to many things that uh, most people would deem quote unquote spiritual. So I kind of get the pull towards it. I'm just saying it's not necessary for everyone that Christianity in particular or religion in general uh, superstition-laden man-made belief systems aren't the sole panacea or the only way out of darkness. Eventually, an appetite for hope, optimism, and meaning begins to develop. The soul requires nourishment. Enter the white pill, also known as the god pill. Here we go, the god pill. Uh, the whole initial red pill thing was cringy enough. Do we really need to keep making up more metaphorical pills? You begin to desire action, order, purpose, and a semblance of values in your life. The world may be going crazy, but you're not going to. The very values that have been stripped from Western nations by the left for the last 50 years gradually begin to make sense. I guess I considered myself an atheist since I was about 13. I rejected the religious teachings of my parents, who were both devout Catholics and quite conservative. And as I entered my teenage years, I began to become more liberal and I believed that I could have all the answers, that science and secularism were adequate substitutes for religion and faith. But as I grew older, I also became more conservative. Hey, I actually managed to let him talk for a whole uh, two minutes, I think. Uh, now there's self-control. 
It's funny. Um, I can relate to his upbringing. I was raised Catholic, too, and my parents were fairly devout. We used to have the go-to-church every Sunday, although that became less and less uh, as we all, you know, as we got older to the point where no one really went anymore. Um, it became kind of a lapsed Catholic uh, household, at least as far as physically going to church was concerned. My siblings and I all went through Sunday school slash CCD, First Communion, Confirmation, etc., etc. Uh, there you go, have a drink. Uh, it's the fourth after all. The big difference is, though, um, my parents may have been conservative in a sense, seeing as they were kind of old world or old school Catholics. Politically, they were more like, and still are, something like blue collar or working class uh, Kennedy uh, Democrats. And I don't know if I'm erroneously working under the uh, assumption that he was implying his parents were conservative. I, I think he said um, he became more conservative as he got older and came to understand the values of his parents. I don't know why I dragged my own parents into it. I, I think I was just trying to make the point that, you know, obviously um, not all Catholics are necessarily conservative. There's actually a lot of Catholics out there who happen to be Democrats. It's actually, even if it might sound kind of counterintuitive, it shouldn't be all that surprising. I think there's a fairly long history of social justice advocacy or, or activism among Catholics. Remember... Uh, Wow, this was a few years ago. There was that nuns on the bus thing where you had these actual, as the name suggests, nuns on a bus who were um, fighting against government aid uh, cuts and, uh, you know, fighting for these different kind of social justice causes. I think, isn't, uh, it's been a long time since I watched MSNBC. I, I pretty much stopped watching mainstream um news stations in general. Uh, but I think MSNBC host and former uh, Capitol cop uh, Chris Matthews is Catholic. I, I think I remember him talking a lot about his uh, his faith on, uh, on his show Hardball or whatever. And it's funny, some people say that people tend to become more conservative as they get older. But I think I've actually witnessed my parents, here I am dragging them into it again, witnessed my parents become even more left-leaning as they've gotten into their golden years. They were always Dems, but I can remember a decade or two ago when Lou Dobbs was still on CNN, there was this big kind of anti-immigrant paranoia, lots of talk of immigrants stealing jobs, etc., in a way not that different than today. And my father, being someone who built up his own carpentry slash remodeling business, saw how a lot of other contractors out there were all hiring cheap immigrant labor. And he would bitch about that and watch Lou Dobbs stirring up, you know, anti-immigrant sentiment every night. Then over time, he and my mother both developed a kind of softer, a more sympathetic approach to things like that. Maybe in part it has to do with the fact that the right seems to keep moving further and further right, and immigration is kind of the pet issue of the Trumpian right. Or maybe they've just both softened with age and have a adopted a more kind of humane approach. I don't know. I'm sure seeing news footage of children in cages separated from their parents, stuff like that probably helps soften your opinion on, uh, on immigration too. 
I like to think I have a pretty measured, common-sense approach to immigration. I think we should have the right to know, you know, and control who's coming into our country, and we should have a very low-tolerance policy when it comes to crimes committed by people who are here illegally. If you catch someone who's here illegally committing a violent crime, uh, you know, or drinking and driving, putting um, legal citizens or the rest of the population in danger, then it should be party over. It's jail or back to your country of origin. Not that they won't just try to come over again, but you gotta try. You can't just look the other way. That being said, America is a melting pot and everyone deserves to be treated with humanity and respect. I'm very sympathetic towards so-called anchor babies and think this country should be considered their home, which it is. And I think decent people, even those here illegally, if they are in fact decent and uh contribute to society, should be given a pathway to citizenship. I've rubbed shoulders with a lot of immigrant laborers, people from South and Central America. Uh, no idea on their official status, but I imagine at least a fair number of them were here unbeknownst to uh, the government and, and yet getting paid off the, you know, getting paid off the books or whatever. And yet, some of the sweetest, warmest, uh, most hardworking people you could ever meet. I'd have a lot of trouble personally looking one of those people in the eye and saying, hey, you gotta go, man, you know? But why the hell am I talking about immigration? And I began to realize that the wisdom of my parents was based on something timeless, universal, and tried and tested for thousands of years. That the teachings of Christ were a set of rules and instructions that not only made intuitive sense when carefully studied, but actually had been essential in building and maintaining our Western civilization. Modern humans have been around for what, somewhere in between a couple of hundred thousand years to half a million years, something like that. Christianity's been around for a little less than 2,000 uh, years. We had functioning human societies before Christianity, and a lot of uh, the values and precepts in Christianity predated or mirrored in other traditions and cultures. The so-called golden rule, treating others as you'd like to be treated, uh, can be traced back roughly, what, a couple of thousand years prior to Christianity to things like ancient Egypt and the Babylonian Code of Hammurabi. And the claim that Western society is rooted in Christianity, well, there's probably some truth to that. Uh, but Christianity itself, although an offshoot of Judaism, uh, took root in the fertile ground of the Greco-Roman world. And Roman and Hellenistic culture, including the ideas of some of the great philosophers like Plato, surely influenced Christianity. Uh, but either way, I don't think that Christianity is necessary to maintaining a stable or moral society. And even if Christianity did contribute some valuable things to Western society, why do we need to hold on to the dogma in this particular set of symbols? And obviously the influence of religion is a double-edged sword. Maybe through either fear or enlightenment, religion does help keep people in line. But it also breeds fear. Uh, superstition, neuroses can cloud or subvert reason. Religious institutions such as the papacy can become infested with corruption. We could do a whole episode on pre-sex abuse scandals and all the cover-ups. And I'm not saying I want to do away with Christianity, you know. Uh, I think I'm of the same mind as um, the late, great Christopher Hitchens. I remember when the Four Horsemen had this, um, you, you can find it on YouTube, I think it's a two-part discussion. 
Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, and Richard Dawkins all, you know, hanging. I think they might have been at Hitchens' place, uh, just having some drinks and talking. And when the question of, if you could, if you could magically just get rid of religion completely, would you? And I remember, like, Hitchens said he didn't think he would, and not just because it would mean he wouldn't have anyone to argue with anymore or whatever or rail against, you know? And I'm kind of the same way. Um, I criticize religion a lot, especially when it comes to literal belief uh, and the, you know, the hypocrisy and that often takes place and all that, uh, exploitation, etc. But I kind of enjoy at least the aesthetics uh, of religion. Uh, it's not for me, but I like having churches around <laughs> and things like that. Um, I would feel like it might be like, there'd be something missing if there was, if we lost all the Gothic architecture and we lost, uh, you know, the church that you pass along the way, you know, on your ride to work or whatever. So I'm not saying I want to get rid of Christianity. I'm just saying that I don't think Christianity or religion in general is necessary to have, um, an orderly, prosperous, and humane society. You don't have to hold on to superstition or dogma in order to be a good person or have a good society. And I don't know why this just came to me, but also if we're talking about the roots of Western civilization and how we keep an orderly society and everything, didn't the legal system, at least in part, come from... Uh, I think the Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings, uh, I think it, they'd sometimes refer to it as barbarian law. Uh, what was it? The Vikings had a, a legal system or, or a kind of a legal process or convocation known as The Thing, I think, not to be confused with the awesome John Carpenter movie. Um, isn't that the case? I think that's the case. Let's see. I'm looking at uh, Britannica.com. Anglo-Saxon law, the body of legal principles that prevailed in England from the 6th century until the Norman Conquest, uh, 1066, in conjunction with Scandinavian law and the so-called barbarian laws, legis bar barbarorum, I think, of continental Europe, it made up the body of law called Germanic law. And this is from a site called History on the Net, okay, during the Viking Age, the Norse had an oral culture and only rune writing existed. However, the Vikings had both law and government, even without written law. All free men of the Vikings would gather in their communities to make law and to decide cases in a meeting called a thing. Each community had its own independent thing. Yeah, so I was basically right. I think, right? Okay, anyway, back to this guy. While a decade ago, I had buried myself in the Horseman in my mid to late twenties, watching Hitch, Harris, Dawkins, and Dennett own religious apologists in debates time and time again, I had, however, dismissed all too quickly that the Horsemen were simply unable to adequately refute the claim that you cannot get an ought from an is. Okay, so this is probably something uh, some of you have heard of before. The so-called uh, is-ought distinction articulated by famous... 18th century Scottish philosopher David Hume. Uh, you often hear this concept or argument brought up by Christian apologists, I, I think. It basically boils down to the idea that people often erroneously try to declare what ought to be based on what is. And it should probably be noted um, 
and he, he implicitly cites Hume here, but the religiosity of Hume, I think, is still a matter of debate or contention. The consensus seems to be that he seems to have been at least skeptical of religion, and at the best may have been weakly deistic. So, I mean, really, you're going to turn your back on the quote-unquote horseman because of Hume and the is-ought distinction. And I always think it's odd, you know, trying to wrap my head around how someone can go from agreeing with the insights and reasoning of atheist thinkers like Hitchens back to being a believer. Is he embracing a kind of cultural Christianity, a kind of figurative interpretation for the sake of the social contract or social cohesion? Or has he gone from seeing how the sausage of faith is made, uh, the man-made nature and contradictions of religion, back to believing someone literally walked on water 2,000 years ago? And in fairness, though, I think I do kind of know what he's getting at. I'm kind of reading between the lines here, but he might be saying that despite impressive atheist arguments... Uh, you know, that come from people like the Four Horsemen, they still couldn't provide him with the moral oughts and sense of purpose that religion can offer. And I have a couple of issues with that. My voice just cracked like Peter Brady. Uh, But I have a a couple issues with that um, line of thinking. On the one hand, as I was saying earlier, I don't think Christianity or organized religion in general is necessary to give one a sense of purpose or meaning. And secondly... I care about what's true, not true in some wishy-washy, Peterson-esque kind of way, but what is factually and empirically true. I think I would feel like a sellout somehow if I re-embraced a belief system that includes all sorts of supernatural claims that I didn't believe were literally true, just for the hope that it would give me some sort of comfort or it would make me a stand-up member of society or whatever. Science is the means by which we understand the physical world around us. It is not the means by which we derive our morality. For that, we need philosophy, metaphysics, religion. Human beings need relatable stories, instructions, parables, in order to develop a moral and ethical framework in which to live. Science and religion are actually not in conflict, as some atheists believe. So I actually kind of agree with some of his points here. I don't think that science and religion are always mutually exclusive or have to be at loggerheads. You can be, and there are Christian scientists out there, including uh, notably Francis Collins, the head of the Human Genome Project. I believe he was also a, uh, a personal friend of Christopher Hitchens. But that being said, I think some kind of loose spirituality or vague belief in a higher power is probably easier to reconcile with mainstream science than rigid literal belief. If you insist on believing in the Bible literally, then you're probably going to run into uh, all sorts of snags or problems when you try to reconcile your beliefs with science, uh, creation versus evolution, biblical quote-unquote history versus mainstream history, and or archaeology, that kind of thing. If you take a more figurative approach to Christianity, a kind of cafeteria approach, where maybe you believe in the resurrection but aren't as strict with your interpretation of Old Testament events, then yeah, you can say evolution is the process by which God's creation unfolds. Adam and Eve weren't 
plop down in the garden. Well, I think technically, uh, well, it depends on which account. Uh, isn't there one account where he makes them both out of, you know, the dust of the earth? And one, you know, I think probably the more famous of the versions where he removes a, a, a rib from the sleeping Adam and makes Eve. But, you know, um, if you take the story in the garden figuratively, so you don't believe Adam and Eve were, you know, magically made by God or plopped down like a couple of action figures and brought to life, but that rather they're a symbolic representation of mankind, you know, that this idea or approach that the stories found in the book of Genesis are open to being interpreted as, uh, as parables. And I think there certainly are Christians who take this kind of approach, but you got to have something to hang your hat on. So I think most Christians, unless you're simply nominally or culturally Christian, um, you know, if you're a practicing Christian, unless you do some kind of weird hoity-toity philosophical gymnastics and take a really watered-down figure of approach, most Christians still believe in the miracle of the resurrection. But uh, they do free themselves up a bit, take that kind of cafeteria Catholic approach when it comes to um, the Old Testament and the miracles and stories found therein. But for some reason, I've mentioned this a lot on the show in the past or over the years, uh, this subject always makes me think about that uh, debate you can find on YouTube between Christian apologist William Lane Craig and... Um, John Shelby Spong, a retired bishop of the Episcopal Church. And it's just wild seeing these, these two Christians get locked in this kind of intense debate over the nature of the resurrection with uh, Shelby Spong not even really believing in a physical resurrection, but still somehow believing that something happened. But in fairness to uh, Christians who take a kind of symbolic uh, approach to the Old Testament, I think you can go as far back as St. Augustine or Augustine, uh, who uh, proposed or thought that uh, the seven days of creation weren't meant to be interpreted as literal 24-hour periods. Let's see. And then he goes in this kind of Jordan Peterson direction, talking about how we need stories makes me think of Tyrion in that final horrible episode of Game of Thrones. But, you know, we need stories and symbols to give us uh, direction and meaning, uh, meaning etc. And I'm probably uh, really paraphrasing, but I think I'm being fair to the spirit of what Computing Forever was saying. And I kind of agree or sympathize with him here. Even though I'm a non-believer, I'm a big Joseph Campbell fan. I have uh, a deep love or fascination with mythology that stretches back to my youth. And I acknowledge the psychological or psycho-emotional power of symbols. And there's nothing wrong with drawing psychological or emotional strength from symbols. I do it all the time, actually. And for me, I actually think one of the most powerful themes in religion or myth is the theme of resurrection or of a dying and rising God. And a key difference occurred to me a bit ago uh, while thinking about all this. A lot of the dying and rising God stories are pretty straightforward. Odin dies for the acquisition of wisdom. Osiris dies because of his, you know, his brother sets a jerk and rips him apart. Uh, we know Christ was crucified, and I'm agnostic on the historicity of uh, Christ or Jesus. But I have no problem with the idea that there may have been an ancient Jewish preacher 
or, or a dissident who is crucified like so many countless others by the occupying power that was the Roman Empire, you know, for stirring up trouble. But theologically speaking, why did Jesus have to die in the context of God's plan? This is a topic that could get very convoluted. I know as a young Catholic kid, uh, I was taught that it was some sort of atonement, that he died for the sins of the world to redeem man from original sin. And there was sometimes talk of a ransom paid to the devil and so on. But I think the theory can vary from one denomination to another. Uh, but anyway. So Computing Forever and I both seem to agree on the power of stories and symbols. Um, I was going to make another Tarian joke there. But where we disagree is that he seems to think that's worth signing up to a religion for the stories and the symbols uh, and hope that it acts as some kind of social um, adhesive or something. Where I'd rather be a free agent and draw inspiration from whatever symbols I want as I go. They're not actually in competition. One is the means by which we understand the physical world around us. The other is the means by which we derive meaning and moral instruction. This system may even form the basis of a legal system or constitution for a nation-state to live by, but the core philosophy must be based upon something that cannot be altered or replaced by man-made ideals. He says can't be replaced with man-made ideals, but aren't religions and their tenets and their uh, supernatural faith claims uh, man-made. And I know the believers might uh, take issue with that, but that's how I see it. And I actually think, in a sense, science can tell us something about morality. We're evolved social beings wired with a capacity for, yes, unfortunately, nasty things like tribalism and violence, but also group cooperation, solidarity, empathy, and altruism. And I don't think that we need stale, superstitious dogma to give us, uh, you know, a moral sense or compass. I, I think the answer is a combination of both nature and nurture. Our inherited capacity for, as I was saying, uh, group solidarity, cooperation, altruism, empathy, you know, th those things that come from being a, an evolved social animal, reinforced and shored up by culture and society. An example might be, you know, something as simple as the perennial golden rule, which, as I stated earlier, far predates Christianity. And I almost forgot, a while back he casually mentions the values stripped away from society by the left. And as I was saying near the beginning of this episode, I, I try to avoid political tribalism and don't really affiliate myself with a particular party, but once again I am left-leaning. I support LGBTQ rights, gay marriage, strong separation of church and state, and I believe in uh, a kind of social safety net. And it sounds like he's trying to blame modern society's ills on one side of the political divide. The left have stripped away our values. And I wonder what values he's alluding to, probably the usual conservative or right-wing talking points. The left is redefining marriage. They devalue life with their support of abortion. Uh, they want to hand out goodies to everyone. And since I mentioned all that stuff, I guess I might as well quickly, if there is such a thing with me, give my thoughts on them. Marriage, to me, marriage is just a man-made institution, uh, and maybe just is the wrong word. Uh, that's not to devalue or belittle it. I appreciate two people loving each other enough to want to spend their lives together. 
Uh, but nevertheless, a man-made institution. For most of history, I think, you know, they tended to be uh, arranged uh, matters and were more about dowries and political alliances than uh, people coming together of their own free will with uh, another person of their choice, you know. Um, and if two people of the same sex want to get married, what do I care? I think it's a nice thing. And don't worry, there'll always be plenty of straight people around to have families and keep the species going. Uh, Homo sapiens isn't going to die out because of gay marriage or whatever. Um, abortion, I don't think any sane, decent person celebrates abortion. People might celebrate having bodily autonomy, having the right to choose. But most of us can probably agree that, you know, terminating a pregnancy is a, a serious matter. And I'm sure the people who understand that the most are the women who undergo uh, the procedure. Uh, I'm sure for many women, having an abortion is a very trying or emotional experience. And uh, abortion has been around forever. If it wasn't legal, people would inevitably return to the gruesome, dangerous custom of uh, resorting to back-alley abortions, so-called back-alley abortions. And I think I touched on this recently, but the New Testament is pretty silent on abortion as far as I'm aware. And in the Old Testament, there seems to be a distinction made and a greater value placed on, you know, a, a fully formed person outside the womb. And there's even the so-called, uh, was it, the ordeal of the bitter waters, the story of how a priest would give this concoction to a pregnant woman suspected of adultery. And, and if the child in her womb was the result of adultery, then drinking it would supposedly cause the pregnancy to end. And according to the story, um, a kind of abortifacient, I suppose. Okay, I just wanted to make sure I got it right. And yeah, yeah, I know Wikipedia. <laughs> but here we go. A sota in Hebrew is a woman suspected of adultery who undergoes the ordeal of bitter water or ordeal of jealousy as described and prescribed in the priestly code in the book of Numbers, the fourth book of the Hebrew Bible. So even the Bible doesn't seem to be as hung up on abortion as modern Christians are. And handing out free goodies as I... Uh, as I sarcastically uh, referred to it. Uh, you guys probably know by now, I, I believe in a kind of social safety net. Things like government-provided health care, uh, maybe even a universal basic income. Uh, you know, why not? Uh, as, as long as it can be realistically, these things can be realistically implemented and maintained. And of course, the argument we hear from the right so often is that will be left with subpar health care and often, you know, people will criticize certain aspects of the health care system in places like Canada or on the other side of the pond, the UK. And admittedly, I'm not an expert on the health care system. And I've heard people spin it both ways. I've heard people talk about how great the Canadian health care system is. I've heard people talk about how bad it is, these long waiting lists and things like that. And I've heard people commend the UK's healthcare system. I've heard people pan it. And I, I honestly don't know. But I think if theoretically, if we could maintain at least the same quality of healthcare we have now, but it, it was, you know, government funded and people no longer had to worry about 
whether getting sick was going to bankrupt them or not or whatever, you know? I'd be all for that. And I remember when David Pakman was on Joe Rogan show recently, he made a really interesting point that stuck with, with me. Um, I forget exactly how he phrased it, but he was talking about this mentality where I think he might have called it like the disapproving father or angry or judgmental father mentality or something. But this scenario where, let's say even we could financially pull off something like government-funded healthcare. I, I'm, to be honest, I'm not even sure what the proper terminology is. Um, or universal basic income or something like that. Like, let's say financially, we could definitely do it. You know, um, there's still people who kind of, you know, usually on the right, who scowl at these things because they feel like if you didn't earn it, you don't deserve it. You know, I mean, you shouldn't just receive free stuff, you know. But to me, no, if, if it can be, like I say, if these things can be realistically implemented and maintained, like, like Andrew, like uh, Andrew, what the hell's wrong with me? Uh, did I just accidentally reference Zoroastrianism? Isn't, uh, is it Angramanyu? Isn't that the evil spirit, <laughs> the evil deity in uh, Zoroastrianism, also known as um, Araman, I think? But um, Andrew Yang, rather, not Angramanyu. Andrew Yang's talking about, you know, giving everyone $1,000 a month uh, just so people get kind of a leg up financially and have this kind of little nest egg or a little something for emergencies or whatever uh, to fall back on. And some people, even if it was affordable, some people would still be like, why should people get a thousand, you know, or why should people get free healthcare or whatever, you know? But I'm like, if it, if it can be realistically implemented and maintained and it makes life better for people, hell yeah, why not? I'm not hung up on any old fashioned, uh, you know, idea that you should have to sweat and bleed for, you know, everything good in life. Bring on that uh, Star Trek utopia, you know what I'm saying? But yeah, anyway, so he's talking about how the left has stripped all the values away from our society. And when people talk like this, you know, it sounds like they're pining for some bygone good old days. Uh, was there some Christian utopia that I missed? I mean, what time period are we talking about? The Victorian era, where when uh, Jack the Ripper roamed the streets and the streets were crawling with disease, poverty, and crime? Or how about, you know, the 1950s or midway through the 20th century when we were still separating people by uh, skin color and it was just accepted that uh, men would, you know, fondle their secretaries uh, or whatever. I guess my point being that I don't think there ever was some perfect, you know, Christian utopia. And let's not even get into the Middle Ages. Christianity was pretty big then. Uh, let's see what we have. Rampant superstition, mass hysteria, inquisitions, witch hunts. <laughs> All very cool and fascinating stuff. Metal as fuck, as the kids say. I wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of any of it, though. Th there I go with the F-bombs. What the hell's wrong with me? It's the idea that there is a higher power that man is answerable to, 
that governments and politicians cannot challenge, that the state is beholden to the values and morals that the populace subscribe to. This is one of the primary utilities of religion in our society. And I can't believe how often I have to pause this video. Uh, I can't go 10 or 20 seconds at a time without running into something I take issue with. So the primary function of religion, or one of the primary functions in society, is to give us a moral framework and to keep government in line with the ideals and beliefs of the people. Paraphrasing once again, I think I kind of got it, though. Well, here in America, at least, there's supposed to be a little something known as the separation of church and state. And as I just expounded on, I certainly don't think religion is necessary for morality. I, I know he's re-embraced Christianity, but I wonder if he's re-embraced the Catholic Church. We could have a nice long talk about the Catholic Church and morality. And let's say for the sake of argument that religion did provide society with a moral framework. Okay, once again, shouldn't it matter whether or not the claims of a given religion are actually true? Not everyone has this sophisticated, highbrow, wishy-washy, overly philosophical um, take that, say, a Jordan Peterson does, that kind of interpretation of religion. There's lots of people walking around who believe this shit literally. There I go swearing again, apologies. And who continue to push this crap on their kids. If you want to be Christian, be Christian. If it works for you, cool. But peddling it like it's some societal cure-all, like there was ever some Christian utopia we need to find our way back to. There's lots of secular humanists and free thinkers out there who are very moral people who lead lives rich with meaning, and they do so without burdening themselves with mind-forged manacles, to quote uh, one of the four horsemen. The, the Irish Constitution, the preamble begins, in the name of the most holy trinity, in whom is all authority, and to whom, as our final end, all matters of men and of states must be referred. A very beautiful sentence. Now, Dave, you see, you can treat that as a kind of prayer, an invocation, if you want. And it has that appearance and feel. And I understand how non-religious people might kind of balk at that. And I always say this, when I was talking about it, I always say, look, I, I understand. I understand. But it's also something else. Apart from it, you can just back, back away from that fear you have, which is a natural kind of maybe a resentment or a sense of, uh, you know. And I said, it's something else. It's a mechanism to do something. And what is it? It's a mechanism to take the most fundamental rights of human beings and place them out of the reach of human beings. So Bagosh and Bagora, he's, he's talking to like the Irish equivalent of Jordan Peterson. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm teasing, as I've explained numerous times on the show before, my view of Jordan Peterson is somewhat complicated. I enjoy uh, some of his lectures. And I know a lot of people, I consider myself a lefty, and a lot of people on the left really do not care for Peterson, to put it uh, mildly. I think I remember... Um, Michael Eric Dyson characterizing him as an angry white man or angry white guy or something like that. I actually think Peterson is pretty, uh, you know, thoughtful and mild mannered. And I kind of enjoy listening to him, although he does say some, uh, some stuff I take issue with, uh, at times, or I wonder, you know, what's behind him bringing certain things up or whatever like that. I was put off by that kind of clash he had with the vice interviewer or journalist like i said he's usually pretty mild-mannered but there was something off about his attitude in that interview maybe he was just pissed at the vice guy 
But uh, he was going on about makeup in the workplace, and there was something about that that really kind of uh, put me off. Um, but, uh, you know, I didn't really care much for the Vice interviewer either, though. Uh, it was just all, all around a kind of uncomfortable interview to watch. I think, as I said in the show before, I'm trying to think if I covered this on a Patreon bonus episode, that I've always been fascinated by the evolution of sexuality and what we call sexual cues, sexual signals, things like that. And I agree with him that makeup, even if, you know, it's, it's, makeup has become such a fixed part of, of life for women that I think many of them don't even really think about it in those terms, you know, as a sexual cue. Um, they do it, a lot of them, to, to make themselves feel better, to look, you know, in their own eyes, presentable or whatever. Um, and I think it's right that it's said by um, by experts, whatever the specific field would be, I don't know if it's biology or anthropology or whatever, that makeup does kind of work to enhance or amplify natural sexual cues. Um, the theory or thinking is is that you know painting your your lips and your cheeks you know kind of ruddy or reddish uh, blackening or darkening around your eyes this is supposed to mimic the look of the female face during sexual arousal uh, and, and it's you know there's probably truth to that um, and it's something I've heard a lot uh, over the years uh, you know watching scientific documentaries and stuff like that. But even so, you know, it's like, it's the year 2019. Um, I think it's, women should be able to wear makeup if they want to. Wearing makeup goes back to, you know, time immemorial or antiquity. Um, And guys should be able to have enough self-restraint that they can control themselves and not act like asses around a woman just because she's wearing, you know, makeup or whatever. Um, so it, it should be a non-issue. It should be, even if there is some evolutionary psychology behind it, it should be moot. You know, it's just makeup. Come on. And even though I like certain things about Peterson as a non-believer, I find his kind of slippery, wishy-washy, airy-fairy approach to things like quote-unquote truth and God to be rather frustrating, but as someone who also has an appreciation for myth and symbols and Jungian psychology, I kind of dig listening to him, as I was saying. Uh, and I think some of his life advice is pretty solid. But uh, here we have this guy talking about how this opening prayer invoking the Trinity, you don't have to take it literally. It's a metaphor for moving the rights of men, etc., out of the reach of man. And I actually don't have a problem with the idea that there are these kinds of natural rights, rights that everyone should be entitled to just by the virtue of being human. I think it's a very good thing to revere the individual and their right to freedom and happiness in a way that you think of them as having these basic inalienable, I can say that, inalienable human rights. The trick, of course, is that... it's a concept that almost inevitably opens the door to talk of God because people will understandably ask, well, where do these inalienable natural rights come from, you know, if not God? And it's tricky. I mean, I personally believe almost out of a sense of decency that we should venerate these basic human rights. 
almost as if they are inalienable or inviolable. But I'm very doubtful, much like the case with so-called objective morality, that these things really do come from beyond, that they're literally granted by some divine source. And I'm probably painting myself into a corner here, but I do believe in a sense that even though I doubt the existence of a creator, especially some sort of personal creator god, I do still think of life as sacred somehow, for lack of a better word, whether it be staring back at us through the eye of a frog or insect or in the form of a fellow human being. I feel like living beings, including, of course, my fellow homo sapiens, are do a basic measure of respect. Uh, I kind of, um, uh, kind of almost reverence just on the merit that they are alive and relatively sentient. Uh, maybe that's in part an evolved sense of empathy. Perhaps it has to do with my past exploration of Buddhism and Eastern religion and philosophy in general. But that's how I feel. And, and so I get why people want to evoke this kind of language, uh, natural, inalienable, even quote-unquote God-given. But damn, man, the Trinity, that's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty uh, specific. A lot more specific than the kind of vague language uh, used by our deistic founding fathers you know, over here. So they can't be interfered with. And that's how you protect human beings from tyranny. Nations and even empires that lose religion tend to collapse within a couple of generations. This is the pattern that John Glubb observed time and time again when he catalogued the rise and fall of great powers throughout history. Now, I have to admit that till now I had never heard of John Glubb, uh, but this claim that the loss of religion precedes the fall of empires, I don't know, it sounds a bit suspect. Um... Me, you know, I'm open to being proven wrong, and that's not bravado. I mean, I might very well be wrong, but it just sounds a little questionable going on what I know about ancient or world history. I mean, shit, when Rome fell in the late 5th century, uh, Christianity was basically all the rage, right? You had Constantine and the Edict of Milan in the 4th century and all that. In fact, I think uh, some scholars even posit that the rise of Christianity may have been one of the contributing factors to the fall of the Western Empire. But fairness, the Roman Empire didn't really completely fall. The seat of power shifted from the West to East following the fall of Rome to uh, barbarian invaders. Then the Eastern or Byzantine Empire, I think it finally fell in the 15th century when the Ottomans stormed uh, Constantinople. I would, I would imagine what really determines whether or not an empire falls is the strength of its rulership and military, as well as various logistical factors, availability of resources, how fortified a city is, the size and tenacity of the invading army, etc. Seems like most empires fall because they get their asses kicked, to put it crudely, I don't know. When an age of decadence is reached in a society, an age of liberalism follows. When you take God out of the equation, man tries to become God. Communism, which is once again trying to infiltrate every facet of our culture and compromise our institutions in the form of globalism, believes that the state is God, that it can be mother and father to an infantilized, powerless and impoverished proletariat. It doesn't even matter if you believe in an afterlife or an interventionist God at all, or how the universe got started. These discussions are great fodder for theoretical debates, but they won't build or maintain a society. They won't protect against communism or indeed another outside religion that seeks to dominate the West. Everything the left has done has been a gradual attempt to take people away from who and what they are and where they came from. 
Christianity celebrates the vital importance of the family unit, the most powerful defense against an authoritarian state. In Christianity, the roles of men and women are clearly defined. Okay, so he does seem to be talking about the value of being culturally Christian, I guess. Unless I'm mistaken, as much as he's promoting religion or Christianity specifically here, he's saying that your thoughts on an afterlife, how the universe began, these big existential questions that people often turn to religion for the answers to, you know, he's saying that that stuff isn't even that important. It's the social cohesion provided by cultural Christianity or being culturally Christian, rather. That's what matters. Am I missing something? And here you can see he's kind of pushing back against the redefining marriage thing, talking about the importance of the nuclear family or whatever. But lots of cultures, not just Christian cultures, consider one man and one woman to be the quote-unquote norm in quotes because, as I explained earlier, I'm pro-gay marriage. And I think at the end of the day, marriage is a man-made institution. It could be a very nice and valuable institution, but a man-made institution nonetheless. I don't see why the emphasis needs to be on Christianity, especially if he's pushing some kind of cultural Christianity where literal belief isn't even necessary. Hell, am I Christian by this loose definition? I don't believe in Christianity literally to say the least, but I'm not opposed to traditional heterosexual marriage. I can see the value in it, and I enjoy sacred music, flickering votive candles, etc. If I'm understanding him correctly, and it's all about cultural stability and social cohesion over literal belief, why even use the word faith, which seems to imply that you actually believe in the supernatural claims or tenets? Hmm... And it's funny, I'm single, but a lot of my listeners, many who are, as you can imagine, you know, are quite secular, if not openly atheistic, are married. And I think it goes to show that hanging on to religion isn't necessary in order to preserve some of these traditions that promote social cohesion. Religion or not, people will continue to fall in love and want to share their lives together together often opting to enter into some kind of public or governmentally recognized union. And he invokes the boogeyman of socialism and or communism. And to be honest, I'm not very well versed on the subject. Religion interests me far more than politics. Uh, but that being said, his fear-mongering uh, you know, aside, I don't think capitalism is going away anytime soon, at least not here in the good old uh, U.S. of A., and we have a kind of hybrid system, capitalism tempered with these social safety net programs, which is how I think it should be. I'm very pro-capitalism, but I think it's good to have a system that's tempered with humanity and compassion. And I, for one, as I was alluding to earlier, would actually like to see even more of a social safety net as long as it can be realistically implemented and maintained. Uh, once again, you know, UBI, some kind of government-funded health care, etc. If, if we can afford to hemorrhage trillions of dollars on war, why can't we afford to provide our citizens with quality health care? Or at least make sure families don't go broke battling cancer or whatever. And I apologize if I sound like I'm getting too political lately. I tackled this video because it deals with an atheist returning to Christianity but because of the nature of the guy's talking points, it's pretty hard to avoid talking politics. Uh, let's see where he goes. With great respect given to the unique roles of the mother and the father and the importance of raising children in a set of values shared by other members of our community and tribe. 
the community-building aspect of the religious service, the Mass, and the profession of faith ensure that everyone knows they are part of something bigger than themselves, that there is an authority beyond a democratically elected politician in office. This is how a nation-state is maintained, by recognising the value of the family. As you can see, it's not hard to understand why the leftist cultural Marxists have attacked religion and the family at every turn. This is what Yuri Bezmenov covered extensively in his lectures. The subversion of America, like many Western nations, has taken place by promoting hedonism, sexuality, drugs, and the obsession with materialism. But once again, and you know, unless I'm missing something, which I may very well be, uh, since when does the left have a monopoly on materialism? Uh, he seems to be kind of blaming the left for uh, our society's, you know, obsession with materialism or whatever. Don't people, rightly or wrongly, often associate capitalism, by extension materialism, with the right? And religion and religious services like um, the mass serving as a kind of social cohesion um, or providing a kind of social cohesion. And he says something about it, you know, serving as a reminder that we're a part of something bigger, there's something um, we're accountable to that transcends government or whatever. Well, once again, are we talking figuratively or literally? If we're talking literally, then sorry, I don't believe. And if we're talking figuratively, then fine. If it helps feel connect, helps you feel connected to the community and gives you the warm fuzzies. But if that's the case, is it even really religion anymore? Or is it just a bunch of watered-down symbolism? Uh, gotta keep the herd sleepwalking through the old rituals. I don't know. Uh, but this video is driving me crazy, and this episode's getting way too long. But what was the other thing he said? Oh, yeah. Um, attacking religion at every turn. Uh, I attack religion, if you can call it that. You're, you know, heavily criticize religion because I don't believe the supernatural faith claims to be true and because of the corruption, hypocrisy. Anyway, screw it. Uh, I, I can't get 20 seconds without having to uh, refute something. And uh, I wasn't even halfway through with that, that video, to be honest, but I, I gotta call this episode a wrap, man. This is just getting way too involved and taking too long. Uh, as much as I enjoy doing the show, uh, I just feel like Man, this I gotta put this one to bed. Uh, so you guys know the drill. Please, you know, like the Facebook page. You can follow the show on Twitter. Nothing too exciting happening with the show on Twitter. I usually just, you know, talk with some friends or uh, tweet out the links to the most recent episodes. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe we're doing that now. If you want to support the show, hey, man. Support me on Patreon, <laughs> you know, please. Um, you can go to patreon.com slash the weekend out and support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. Um, all right, brothers and sisters, uh, until next time.